0: you're listening to live from city lights a podcast of readings and archives from city lights books and publishers to learn more visit www.citylights.com
1: so greetings everyone peter maravellis here happy new year to you all on behalf of city lights booksellers and publishers and the city lights foundation I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual extension of our events calendar, where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums. As is customary before each event, I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples, AKA the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to pay tribute to those who have come before us as stewards of the land so tonight we are delighted to be celebrating a wonderful new book on the life and work of the great jazz virtuoso sonny rollins as many of you know city lights has been situated in the hub of what has been a vibrant jazz community over the decades from the jazz workshop on broadway to keystone corner over on vallejo street Jazz at Pearl's, which is right across the street from City Lights for many years, and now a new club on Broadway on the site of the old matador. is called Keys Jazz Bistro, which is co-founded by Dr. Simon Rao, who has served as the uh, executive director of the Brubeck Institute, and is also the founding executive director of the Roots Jazz and American Music Program at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. So jazz gets a fresh boost in North Beach. City Lights has always been in the orbit of both musicians and a jazz-loving public. We have a full selection of jazz at the store so you please come on down it's one of the biggest selections on the west coast if not the country so tonight's event is especially auspicious So to moderate this evening's event, I'd like to welcome Jonathan Bingham. He is a composer, musician, and educator. He teaches at the Conservatory of Music here in San Francisco. In June of uh, 2022, his work debuted at Davies Symphony Hall via the Emerging Black Composers Project. We're delighted to have Jonathan enter the orbit of City Lights most recently, and are happy to have him perform the honors tonight. So Jonathan, take it away.
2: All right. Thank you, Peter. And uh, thank you all for being here. I, my name is Jonathan Bingham. I'm, I'm a composer here in San Francisco. I'm very happy to help moderate this, this conversation. I've been looking for, forward to it for, for quite some time. So thank you, Peter, for having me. Uh, Sonny Rollins, as we all know, was a huge landmark in in what we consider uh, jazz and, and just American music in general. Uh, very experimental, just pushing the genre forward. It's funny because when I was gifted this book, and I I have a copy of it right here, I was also reading the autobiography of Miles Davis. And a few months prior, I was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. And what ties these all together is that all of these individuals were in New York in 1950s Harlem, 1940s Harlem. They were there together at the jazz clubs. And and I'm just reading back and forth between these three books. And, you know, I, I just wish I was a fly on the wall in real time and just... I I I was on one of the pages here, and it's just uh, how Sonny Rollins mentions that playing with Miles Davis was a career boost. And I was reading Miles Davis biography, and he's talking about Sonny Rollins. So this this all is just very exciting to me. So uh, let me give an introduction to our authors. We have Aiden Le- uh, Levy, who is the author of Dirty Boulevard the life and music of Lou Reed and editor of Patti Smith, on Patti Smith, interviews and encounters, a former Leon Levy, uh, Levy Center for Biography fellow. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Village, Voice, uh, Jazz Times, The Nation, and other publications. Um, and then we have our interviewer, who is Alame Alake, who is a poet, Novelist, translator, critic, and scholar. Uh, his books have included little history from the wearing factions, memories of our future and after Jews and Arabs. So, uh, with that, I just wanted to encourage everyone to locate the chat function or to, and to utilize the chat function in this event. And also I want to encourage everyone to switch to speaker view for just a better experience with the Zoom app. So, that being said, please, gentlemen, thank you for being here. We are looking forward to this. Please take it away.
0: Thank you, Jonathan, and thanks to City Lights. Um, it's an honor to be here with uh, Amia Alkali, and he's somebody whose who's work I've admired and respected for so long. So it's uh, really just wonderful to be here. And um, yeah, it was about 65 years ago that sonny rollins made his debut in san francisco um 1958 uh he had just um he was performing at the inaugural monterey jazz festival and then he appeared at the jazz workshop the legendary bay area club and he uh he broke records for that that club and it was right about that time also that sonny learned the art of circular breathing from a saxophonist who lived in the bay area and kermit scott and he he went to san francisco many many times um when he returned after one of his sabbaticals in uh late 1971 he signed with milestone records which uh, became part of fantasy records which was based in berkeley so sunny made regular trips for all of his recording sessions from then on. Uh, So San Francisco is really an important place to Sonny Rollins into the history of jazz. But um, before we really start the conversation, uh, I just want to think about something that is not so obvious, and that is Sonny Rollins, the reader. And since City Lights has brought us all together tonight, it seemed like an apropos place to start. So, Sonny has always been a voracious reader. And um, he and John Coltrane traded book suggestions with each other. So, Sonny recommended a book called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And that shaped Coltrane's spiritual beliefs and in turn his music. And uh, Coltrane um, recommended the work of Hazrat Anayat Khan, um, Mysticism of Sound and Music. And this uh, was very important to their development, not just musically but also spiritually. They were readers. Uh, When Sonny took his sabbatical and practiced on the Williamsburg Bridge, he copied, he transcribed over some quotes that he loved that were important to him Uh, he had john dunn's no man is an island he was reading william james at one point he was reading sangor um so really just a voracious reader sonny rollins uh we don't necessarily think of the great jazz musicians as uh being bookworms but so often that is the case uh so sonny loves the people's history of the united states by howard zinn uh, this is a reflection of his politics and it's something that also shaped uh, the way that he he views the world and and shaped his music as well uh noam chomsky big reader of noam chomsky sonny rollins uh, when bill mckibben published the end of nature sonny was an early reader and he's been at the front lines of the environmentalist movement. Uh, ever since people started talking about global warming and climate change. So I, I just thought it was a nice place to start, just to think about Sonny Rollins um, playing hours and hours every day on his horn, and then um, right at his bedside would be a stack of books, um, you know, a few feet high. So, um, yeah, just just want to say, um, again, honored to be here. i glad to have this conversation uh with Amiel and with you all and um yeah that that seemed like a good good place to start when uh I talked to Sonny not too long ago for my I was thinking about my doctoral dissertation which is separate from this book project and it's on the connection between jazz and literature and I was asking Sonny if he channeled a literary voice ever since I knew he was such a reader and if he thought of his music as an uh, adjunct to, or in dialogue with the literary. And he said, you know, he, he thinks of um, Lester Young as a speech-like player. And he thinks of himself as a speech-like player. But he doesn't think of what he was doing, or what his peers were doing, as in response to the literary, but rather the other way around, that the literary was a response to what they were doing. And if we think about um, the Beat Generation, for instance, if we think about Ferlinghetti, I think that we see evidence of that. So anyway, uh, that's just a place I wanted to start. uh, Just some brief remarks. And uh, in honor of City Lights, one of my favorite places in the world
3: and favorite bookstores in the world. Thank you, Aidan. Can you hear me okay? Yes. That's a perfect place to start, I think. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. It is the other way around because uh, the language of that music was a statement about the world that created a literature uh, in many ways. So, and we'll also talk about Sonny as a writer, besides being a reader. Um, uh, I just wanted to start by just saying a few things about the book. Um, the book is overwhelming. It's, it's so moving. And I think the length is very important because you get to live with Sonny for a certain amount of time. And that's very important. And I would highly recommend readers, to also get under the hood, spend some time with the footnotes, because there you begin to see the kind of historical work that Aiden has done, which is absolutely extraordinary. Um, because of the length of Sonny's career and because of the access you had to him personally, you were able to really depict a very important chunk of U.S. and really global history through his life, and through his encounters, and through really, what is a quest for freedom, you know, what is really a quest for freedom, and form, and beauty, and dignity, and uh, that comes across so powerfully, so clearly. Um, So, I just wanted to start by asking you how you got into this project and how your relationship over all these years that you've been working on it with sonny has developed well
0: i first discovered sonny rollins when i was very young maybe i was about 11 years old and i had only been playing the saxophone for a few years and uh i went to the record store in my town and i found saxophone colossus on cd and i uh you know the expression uh with vinyl would be i, I wore out the grooves uh, well i didn't exactly wear out the grooves with that but eventually that record did that cd did start to skip and um, so i i had to replace it um but that was such an entry point for me in, into jazz uh was was through sunny and i discovered Sonny before i discovered charlie parker before i discovered coltrane before i heard billy Holiday or ella fitzgerald um so that was really how it started i just remember hearing his intro to um, you don't you don't know what love is and um just trying to emulate that um but anyway i uh i moved from the alto to the tenor and then the baritone and uh eventually during college i got more serious about the idea of uh, being a music writer it seemed like a way to combine everything i was doing I was an English major, and I was also a jazz musician. So I just mm-hmm. uh, put those things together and uh, started writing uh, when I moved to New York shortly thereafter. So a few years later, I was doing editorial content for Blue Note Records, and I had the opportunity to interview Sonny for it was the anniversary, the 55th anniversary of the album Nukes Time. When Sonny plays that duet with Philly Joe Jones on the Surrey with the fringe on top and just being able to speak with Sonny for an hour or so was so moving and enlightening that I was inspired to look more deeply into his life and career. So I read every book that was out there on Sonny and uh, you know, there was just more inspiration there uh i saw the documentaries and i i just wanted to know more and there wasn't a fully comprehensive book out there at this time so it just occurred to me uh, maybe maybe i would if since that book doesn't exist maybe i would try to do it myself it seemed like a crazy idea and uh, honestly i'm still gobsmacked that uh seven years after conceiving or really beginning this project that now it actually is out in the world but it it started with reaching out to sonny and, and making sure that he was okay with my working on a biography and uh to my surprise he he said okay so slowly um you know i did all the research i could talked to everybody i possibly could went to every archive i could and um Talk to Sonny as much as I could as well. So it it was um an unbelievable experience to immerse myself in the world of Sonny Rollins for the better part of a decade now. And um yeah, I'm I'm glad to to share that
3: with all of you readers. Yeah, yeah. Uh you beat me by a year. I think I discovered Sunny when I was twelve. And uh a friend of mine played live at the vanguard and that has been in my head since then so it's 54 years or so and uh he's been an absolute presence in terms of thinking about art form poetics anything that i've done you know Sonny has been there so reading this was an extraordinary experience um i'm curious you you know, you mentioned the archive and you've done some prodigious archival work in this book. And it's something I, you know, I, I want us to talk about. Um, but before we get to that, um, I just want to, you know, there's a, there's a towards the end of the book. Uh, Sonny says, um, I think it was at a concert. He says, I've been, I'm one of the soldiers in the spiritual battle of jazz, which, um, which in my note, as I said before, which marches of course toward expansion- expression, form, beauty, feeling, and freedom um at the same time, you've been able to depict you know what Sonny and these musicians were up against, you know in terms of racism in terms of the position that the music was put in, the context that the music was put in um the conditions under which they worked um and so on and so forth and that story is such crucial history and i'm interested in just hearing how you um what kinds of things along your research along your thinking along your you know really stood out for you in that in tracing that process of Sonny's, um you know i would say emergence victory heroics you know
0: Mm mm-hmm yeah. Um, as you were just speaking, I was thinking of this idea of the battle for the soul of America um, that's been kind of in the ether. I feel like uh, Biden said this not too long ago, and uh, it, it occurs to me that uh, Sonny Rollins and his peers, like uh, Max Roach, Abby Lincoln, john coltrane charlie parker billy Holiday, coleman hawkins they were engaged in this battle for the soul of america uh, they were really at the forefront of it uh, they were the cultural warriors who were trying to really make a change that they thought that their aesthetic intervention could
3: uh,
0: could evince social change as well. And Sonny and Coltrane really believed this, especially in the 50s, when they were coming into their own, that if they could reach people, if they could reach hearts and minds, that things would change here. And in 1958, Sonny decided that it was time to make an explicit political statement on one of his albums. And he did that through the music, but he also did it through the liner notes. The album was Freedom Suite. And the piece uh, on that album that stands out is the Freedom Suite, which is a through composed piece that involves extensive improvisation as well. That he recorded with the drummer max roach and the bassist oscar pettiford and he also wrote the liner notes about the cruel ironies of being a black artist in america where his contribution to society cannot be overstated um that the way sonny puts it that the black artist exemplifies the humanities in his very existence and is rewarded with inhumanity Sonny caught some flack for this from his fans. And when he went to the South on his first major tour as a band leader with Leonard Feather and a uh, group of bands called, uh, it was called Jazz for Moderns, was the tour with Dave Brubeck, Maynard Ferguson, and uh, the Austin High gang was kind of like a a barbershop quartet-style group. Sonny went to a couple colleges in Virginia, and after the concert, he encountered some fans who loved his music but couldn't get with his politics. And it got very confrontational. And uh, it was right around this time, uh, during this tour, actually, that Sonny's mother died very suddenly and he found out right before going on at carnegie hall that his mother had passed and he was very close to his mother um he credits his mother and charlie parker for uh helping him clean up his life when he was having a hard time and uh he had to make this decision of whether he'd go on at carnegie hall or whether he would leave immediately and have everybody there hear that Sonny Rollins couldn't appear and to think that he was a no-show. And he makes the decision to go on and play. The show must go on. That's uh, a cliche, but it's something that Sonny Rollins really just lived to his core. And when he got on stage, there was a woman causing a disturbance and clark coolidge the poet was there and and he he documented this in just a really evocative piece so i don't have a recording of this but there were some reviews and especially this piece by coolidge uh and Sonny, hearing this woman uh having some kind of outburst uh starts playing a, a duet with her and i mean it's in this moment of great personal loss that he's still the improviser par excellence that was actually the moment when he made the decision that he just had to keep going he got on stage at carnegie hall and then the next morning at about 5 a.m he boarded a bus into the south that's when that incident happened but anyway you asked about the archival research here and uh sunny wrote about this quite a bit Uh, I found so many essays and journal entries and letters in his archive at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem, only a couple blocks from where Sonny was born, testifying to his deep-seated political beliefs and his lifelong fight against racism, bigotry of all sorts, environmental destruction, and capitalist greed. Uh, he really cared about these causes and considered himself a part of the struggle, still does. So many of these essays are not published. I don't know if he intended to publish them, but they're all, most of them are written on this yellow legal paper in his archive. Uh, he turned out to be a very prolific writer. So, uh, you know, um, I'm hoping like- that
3: we might do that, something about. We might do something about that.
0: I'm hoping you can through maybe the Lost and Found <laughs> yeah. series.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been on my mind for for a long time. When you mention inhumanity, you know, I think people, you know, I'm sure people, some people are knowledgeable, but as an example, you know, you 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 talk about the time when, you know, Monk and Bud Powell and Sonny were all incarcerated at the same time. And Bud Powell, you know, one of his psychiatric notes from Bellevue, I believe was claims to have made records. So that's kind of the gap that's, that's, you know, that's involved here. And I just, you, you mentioned, you know, I, I just want to quote from this. Uh, you, you quoted Max Roach's piece where he says, the royal family of jazz is a joke. No other Duke has ever reigned so nobly and gotten such ill and paltry monetary compensation. No other count has been so nobly used. No other lady has died so friendless and under such dire circumstances and in jail yet. No other president has been so ill abused or condemned to die so torturously slow. No other King has been so ignobly detested by sight since our aristocracy is held in such low esteem can the plebeian hope for god to save us mm-hmm. you know, that kind of sums it up um in you know very powerfully now you also looked at max roach's papers and let's get into the archive a little bit more because you, you not only looked at max roach's papers you looked at harry anslinger's papers you know who was involved in 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 this you know in in the you know, abuse of, of people through the, through, through the drug situation. Um, and yeah, just maybe talk a little bit about your, you know, the, and, and in addition, of course, I can imagine the countless hours you've spent listening, just simply listening and listening and listening closely to understand what was going on in these dates, because, you know, you weren't there but you have a lot of information that you've gotten orally or from Sonny or from other things. And maybe just talk about that process of how you combine this material into this narrative.
0: Yeah. uh, So I love that essay by Max Roach. I don't think that's ever been collected anywhere. And that's something that just stood out in his voluminous archive at the Library of Congress, just writing about, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Lady Day, Billie Holiday, the president, Lester Young, uh, King Oliver, uh, and just the uh, the treatment that they faced. And Max Roach had a lecture that he gave called Jazz is a Four-Letter Word. He didn't like the term jazz. and Many people objected to it. Uh, Miles Davis thought of it as social music. Sonny Rollins tends to feel that it's just a term that we're stuck with and it would be hard to erase it that it's it's just become a uh a signifier that's too uh overwhelming in in what it represents to just do away with it entirely but that that doesn't mean we can't resist some of the fraught history that has been inextricably linked to this music but Max Roach is another artist who felt it was important to keep his material. So that is not just writings and correspondence, uh, all of his business records, all of his contracts, toll receipts. If he went to an auto body shop and had to have the car repaired, he saved that. If the Max Roach Clifford Brown quintet bought new suits, they would, doc, he would document that in there so it gave such deep insights into the day-to-day lives of jazz musicians who were on the road and touring on this circuit that in the late in the mid to late 50s that group was on going through cleveland rochester up to toronto stopping at howard johnson's the uh at the time, the, the largest chain restaurant, and meeting up with other artists who were going the other way on the tour. So that archive was pivotal to my research, as well as Max Roach's unpublished autobiography. That yeah, he worked he, with Amiri on, um, Amiri Baraka, he, Baraka worked on. That's, yeah. that's right. He started it with Larry Neal, and yeah. then uh, Amiri Baraka inherited the project. And uh, much of it is finished, incidentally, I should also mention that the Freedom Suite that I was talking about directly inspired Max Roach and Abby Lincoln's Freedom Now Suite, but it's it's not as well known, the Freedom Suite. But yes, uh, being able to read the material from that unpublished autobiography, it's, I mean, it, it's brilliant. So I, I hope that uh, somewhere all of that gets published one day. Max Roach is another figure that really deserves a full biography uh so there was that archive you you mentioned the harry anslinger papers anslinger was dead set on putting a face to what he thought of as um a criminal problem which was the proliferation of drugs and he did turn to jazz musicians in part to make that case it wasn't just anslinger this was a widespread campaign to justify the um, the bureau's existence to the musicians they recognized that drugs were taking a toll on their community but they also saw the broader cultural forces at play and around 1948 Harlem was flooded with heroin, and there was there were uh, worldwide there was a worldwide network that contributed to this. It was a huge black market, and there was money to be made. Sonny and his friends got caught up in this. They also had heard that Charlie Parker and Billie Holiday were using, and like many people, were under the delusion that if they also used that they could play like bird or lady day i think that very quickly some musicians saw that drugs weren't helping anybody uh charlie parker himself was always hoping that the next generation would get the message to not follow in his footsteps and when Sonny recorded with Charlie Parker, which only happened one time on Miles Davis collector's items in 1953, and they both played tenor, Sonny showed up and Charlie Parker was under the impression that Sonny had gotten clean, that he'd gotten his message, you know, to not, not to be like bird. And later on, somebody on the session said, Oh yeah. Um, Sonny and I were using earlier today, actually. Um, And Sonny saw Bird's face fall. And he was so disappointed to have disappointed his idol that he vowed right then and there that he would have to to get clean. And eventually he did. Although unfortunately, uh, Bird died when Sonny was at a rehabilitation facility in Lexington, Kentucky. And Sonny was hoping he would get out of there and be able to tell "Oh, I got your message. And, you know, this is is really it. Um, Not everybody's uh, following your example in terms of your personal habits, but they're following your example in terms of what what you've done for the music and his brilliance. But anyway, um, much of that came up in my archival research, looking into what was going on in Lexington, Kentucky, or what was going on at Rikers in the early 50s, and this shift from a a model of um, criminalizing drug use to treating it as a disease, addiction as a disease moving more to a model of rehabilitation now it'd be nice to think that they made that change and everybody lived happily ever after we know that's not the case yeah um but yeah the archival research for this book i I was surprised at how much material there was that sunny had thousands and thousands of documents um when i went to the national library of norway in oslo And looked at the papers of a a jazz journalist and presenter named Randy Hultin. I wasn't sure what I'd find there. And it was just hundreds. It was like hundreds of letters from Sonny going from the 70s to the 90s. Um, There were people like Gertrude Abercrombie, the artist uh, who lived in Chicago and was a great friend of many jazz musicians. Uh, Like uh, Dizzy Gillespie was a close friend and um the song Gertrude's bounce um recorded by the Clifford Brown Max Roach quintet uh, is inspired by Gertrude Abercrombie and Sonny also wrote letters to her for um for decades really and you can even see Sonny Rollins hat in one of her paintings
3: so um getting closer to q&a we've got a few more minutes um i just want to mention my own i feel blessed that i for quite a long period i got to see Sonny quite a bit uh and that's really when i was a teenager and i would go to the village vanguard and max gordon would let me sit on the steps for the last show and this is in the early 70s and actually i was reading the a uh, part where bob mover first introduced himself to Sonny, and i'm i i think i was there at that uh, mm-hmm. at those uh dates that would be 72 i think um and i feel truly uh, you know it's just irreplaceable to to have had that experience um there's a quote here you have which i think is priceless um And we haven't really talked about Monk and, you know, the, the, what I, what I want to, what, what you, what you emphasize in a way, and I want to bring this out. Um, everybody who encountered Sonny, you know, playing, even if they didn't continue (laughs) playing with him, expressed the amount that they learned just being with him just being in contact just being in a in that relationship of playing it's simply extraordinary how that how that and of course he had certain key relationships with monk with bud powell obviously with charlie parker but uh there's this beautiful quote when sonny was asked what monk had taught him he said nothing what did he learn from him everything that's that that you know sums up i think something about Sonny's own attitude and how he granted his, you know, the freedom for, for other people to, you know, he said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You, you decide. You know, you decide what you're how you're going to play this and how you're going to do that. And it seems like that is one of the things that even in periods when critically Sonny was, you know, they were mixed reviews and this and that, but it seemed like that was kind of the life force that kept him going you know and he was continually trying things and trying different things and um yeah i think that that comes out so clearly in the book comes out so powerfully that that throughout he was constantly you know his standards for himself were higher than any anybody could have had for him Mm. and uh That's something you you emphasize continually, which I think is a very, very important part of the whole story.
0: Yeah. And by the way, I saw that in the past few days, somebody posted audio of those dates in 1972 at the Village Vanguard, and uh, it's just on YouTube now, um, so people can check that out, but um, just incredible music. Um, that he was playing at that time. Very cool to think that that you were there and to hear <laughs> that about Max Gordon. Um,
3: it, it was just, it was such a gift. I mean, it was such a gift. I mean, I got to hear so many people. You know, I would just show up for the last set, sit on the steps quietly, and nobody bothered me. So, you know, I didn't bother anybody, and I could just listen.
0: And there's really- a grand tradition of that too, and and Sonny was a part of that. That when he was young he and his friends would dress up and uh, put on like a, use an eyebrow pencil or like a cork grease mustache, like Groucho Marx, and they'd go to the clubs and the manager would just look the other way. Right. Because uh, they were there for the music. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, th- there's, there's a tradition of that. Yeah. Um But, That's great. yeah, I mean, Sonny was, such a teacher and still is for so many people but they learn by osmosis um i talked to archie shep for the book and he said you know i I only played with sonny once i sat in with him in around 1964 and i'll never forget it was we played it could happen to you and just the experience of standing next to him and playing this tune together i learned so much about this art form uh and it just stuck with him for all these years i mean to me that was just astonishing but not surprising
3: yeah um i think we're making us the same way yeah i think we're getting flagged here for time for q a so i guess i'll ask peter to step in and uh begin the moderation of that
1: yeah Uh, and the questions have rolled in um robert says amazing piece of work aiden thank you uh finished reading it yesterday can you talk about sonny's quest for quote unquote the lost chord
0: yes um thanks for reading robert and uh the lost chord is something that sonny took from jimmy Durante, the the comedian and he has this comic song that he performed about the idea of the lost chord and uh sonny decided to take that concept seriously that there was such a thing out there uh, a sound that only he could hear in his head and that he would one day play it you know sometimes sonny would imagine the greatest band um that never was you know, with all of his idols and uh, people like Charlie Parker all playing together. And that would be one kind of lost chord, uh, that sound. But it's something that he always hoped to find on the next gig. And I think at some point he realized that he would never quite get there, but that the journey itself was more important because it, there were times in working on this book that I felt like it was sad if somebody as great as Sonny Rollins could never say, all right, um, that's good enough. But then I, I realized that he was able to find some sense of fulfillment, despite the fact that he never accepted that what he had done was good enough that it was really more about this endless spiritual quest for self-improvement. And Sonny believes in reincarnation, but I think that the concept also applies to jazz, that he always thought that the next chorus would be the one where he really said something for the next gig. So... That was the search for the lost chord. It wasn't about finding it, but the endless quest.
1: We have a couple of questions that seem to kind of connect to each other. So I'm going to read them in succession. Carl asks, was being a sax player yourself, uh, did it enhance or deepen your understanding and appreciation of Rollins as a musician? And then Leo asks did you ever find yourself reach or reaching for a musicality in your writing when working on the book
0: uh so being a saxophone player meant and has meant that sonny rollins has always been this impossible standard that i would strive for but can never reach and Because I'm a saxophone player, I know exactly how hard it is to do what he does and to improvise the way he does, that he's part of the first generation of native speakers of the bebop language. And Sonny doesn't just play licks, so he doesn't really repeat himself. Now, of course, there are a few patterns here and there that you might identify, but every classic Sonny Rollins solo that you can think of, it's all quintessential Sonny Rollins, but they're all unique expressions. And uh, so listening to that and listening to something like, let's say, um, Be Quick from the album Tour de Force, as a saxophone player it's just staggering i mean i i have the sonny rollins Omnibook, which is transcriptions of all the some of the greatest sonny rollins solos and it's hard to just play along with sonny even when you're looking at the music the notated music for what he played improvising if you listen to his tenor battle with sonny stitt on Sonny side up uh it's i mean it's just kind of inconceivable that he could do what, what he does. Um, so, yeah, and it, beyond that, just the challenge of finding a good reed, which is something that Sonny and all reed players always have to deal with, getting this piece of wood and getting that thing to vibrate with um, this hunk of metal and making music that, uh for Sonny, has that inimitable tone um so yeah I mean I think it it maybe deepened my appreciation for what he was doing as a saxophonist but I mean I don't think you need to be a saxophone player to appreciate Sonny Rollins but in terms of striving for a musicality in the prose uh yes I, I did try to do that oftentimes um so of course this is a biography so there are names and dates and all of that but I did strive to evoke what I was hearing in the music when, when I wrote this book. Um, now, I knew that I could never quite get there, but that was another kind of search for, for the lost chord, um, that it was this limit that I could never reach to try to evoke what we actually hear in the music through prose uh, was something that seemed necessary if I was going to write this book. And even though it it meant a certain kind of failure to actually get there, that I, I hoped that the effort would in some way evoke the music.
1: Lewis um makes a comment. It's not sad for the artist not finding the lost chord. It's what keeps the artist hungry.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And then I have uh see, Ben asks wondering whether you've heard sonny play live and if he could if you could talk about the experience
0: uh yeah so i'll talk about just his carnegie hall concert in 2007 when um i think it was uh kamadi denizulu uh steve jordan bobby broom and bob cranshaw with clifton anderson and um i mean sonny's sound is i mean there's nobody Sonny could like blow through through a wall is kind of the way that it's been described and he got that in part from uh, his time on the williamsburg bridge but that concert was also notable for um the 50th anniversary of his carnegie hall debut and he played with roy haynes and christian mcbride and um they did uh, some enchanted evening um and a couple other tunes and it it was uh recorded and but to hear Sonny do that was was incredible, and there was a question of whether that would actually be released eventually um It almost was, but Sonny felt it it didn't meet his standard. I hope it's released one day because I mean that um I think a little bit of it was. And then there was also the concert from 1957 that it was in honor of. And that was also recorded. And, and you can hear that at the Library of Congress if you want. That also didn't meet Sonny's standard. Um, I think you can hear a little bit of the 2007 performance on one of his Roadshows albums, um, which was uh, archival releases. And there are four volumes of that. The 1957 concert with... um the bassist Wendell Marshall and drummer kenny Dennis uh it's just a mind blowing performance and uh the fact that Sonny didn't think it was good enough I mean that's kind of part of what has always driven Sonny but um he's he's hearing something that maybe the rest of us aren't quite hearing in terms of how it should be because uh that that performance in fifty seven is is really something else but um Yeah, I mean, Sonny's tone is, uh, I mean, there aren't many tenor saxophonists who have been able to get that kind of sound out of that instrument.
1: Uh, I have a question from Elaine, our beloved director of City Lights. Can you talk a little more about the relationship between Sonny and Coltrane?
0: Yeah. So um, Sonny met Coltrane in Chicago and it was uh in the very early 50s and they met in a hotel and they were they were very very close with each other Coltrane was a few years older than Sonny but Sonny's reputation mm preceded Coltrane's. Coltrane's ascendancy wasn't until later in the 50s. And when Sonny recorded Tenor Madness on, I want to say it's May 24th, 1956, I may be a little bit off there, um, for prestige records, he used the rhythm section from Miles Davis's first great quintet which was um, Philly, Joe Jones, um, Paul Chambers, and Red Garland. And at the time, Coltrane was in that group, the first great quintet. And uh, Sonny decided to invite Coltrane to play on the record because Coltrane had come for moral support and was outside of Rudy Van Gelder's studio, which was really his parents' house. Um Van Gelder's that is and Coltrane was sleeping in the car so they asked Coltrane if he wanted to play on the record and Coltrane had brought his horn so they went in to the living room and settled on this blues which became known as Tenor Madness and um I mean it's just this epic blowing session but when we listen to it now we think of oh like this was some kind of uh maybe it was this like Sonny proving that he could uh, go toe-to-toe with Coltrane and at the time it was actually kind of the opposite of that um that Sonny was giving Coltrane an opportunity to play on that record because in the Miles Davis Quintet um Miles initially wanted Sonny to join the group and he had publicly claimed that Sonny had already accepted the offer and Sonny was in Chicago at the time and had done no such thing there were even marquees um, where Miles was performing and it said featuring Sonny Rollins on the marquee and people would go in expecting to see Sonny and then they would see this complete unknown who was of course John Coltrane Uh, Sonny joined the Max Roach Clifford Brown quintet at that time, but, uh, he and Coltrane were so close. And as I said at the beginning of this talk, uh, they traded, um, reading suggestions. Sonny once said that, um, you know, Coltrane and and Monk were two of the only people that he felt comfortable asking for money from. Uh, and, uh, they would talk on the phone, they'd meet up. Um, Freddie Hubbard used to practice with with both of them, with Sonny and, and Train in 1959. And um, Hubbard would go up to Coltrane's apartment uptown, and Coltrane was working on what became known as Coltrane changes. And then he'd go down to Sonny's on the Lower East Side, and Sonny would say, oh, What? What, what was Coltrane practicing and Coltrane would be saying the same thing about Sonny. Um, so they had this kind of friendly rivalry, but the idea that was put forth by the press that they were bitter rivals or something like that, uh, couldn't be farther from the truth. They, they were really just musical brothers. So, um, I think it really shook Sonny up when Coltrane passed and it's something that inspired him to go deeper into his own spirituality and to go to India, which he did not too long after Coltrane's passing. Um, and Coltrane's uh, wife, Naima, gave Sonny the lyric sheet for uh, A Love Supreme, which is uh, one of Sonny's favorite albums. And he kept it for decades and decades because it's in his archive at the Schomburg Center. So really, they, they couldn't be closer. And um, I think Sonny is is one of the last people that Coltrane spoke to. Um, and Sonny talks about that in the, the documentary on Coltrane. And he also talked to me about that a little bit, that he could hear the, the partials in Coltrane's voice, um, kind of like a with a saxophone player, if you can hear. The different tones um you can hear the overtones of somebody's voice um but yeah i mean they, they they really couldn't have been closer but they also always push each other forward musically
3: i know we're running to the end but i just want to throw in one comment in line with this kind of relationship you mentioned to me when we spoke the other day that uh DiNardo coleman has been a companion of Sonny's these days and uh I think that's extraordinary uh yeah. to see that, you know, carried on generationally.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Orna Coleman's son. And Orna Coleman is another person who was so close to Sonny. Um so it's it's moving that that they're so close.
1: Yeah. Well, we are at the top of the hour. Um I'm gonna turn it over back again to Jonathan to make some uh, closing statements. If we can get your audio back up. Maybe he's having some trouble getting his audio going. Jonathan, can you hear me? I really wanted to thank you both. Thank you, Amiel, for, for doing the honors uh, and, you know, congratulations, Aiden, on this incredible book. Uh, Jonathan was going to make some closing statements. We just can't activate his audio, I regret to say. Um, but I really thank you, Jonathan, for, for being part of this as well. Of course, all our events are made possible by the City Lights Foundation, which encourages deep literacy and continues the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and much, much more. Um, please do check out the City Lights website to learn more about that. And uh, ever grateful to you all. Please be well, be safe. We hope to see you all again soon.
0: Thanks, Peter. Th- thanks so much, Peter, and City Lights. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks to Amiel, really. Um, thanks, Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.